This is Let's Break Good, the podcast where we believe good is just no longer good enough. I'm your host, Joe Agoda, and today we have a great guest, Professor Morgan Ames. Morgan is an assistant adjunct professor in the School of Information at the University of California, Berkeley. Her book, The Charisma Machine, The Life, Death, and Legacy of One Laptop Per Child, is due out at the end of October with MIT Press. Professor Ames holds a PhD in communication from Stanford, as well as a bachelor and master's from the University of California, Berkeley. Today, we will be discussing critical questions on the power and pitfalls of technology and helping us take on the most serious challenges society faces today. Welcome, Professor Ames. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. I want to break free. I want to break free. I want to break free from your lies. Yeah, so self-satisfied. I don't need you. I've got to break free. God knows. Great. So you have dedicated your career to the study of technology and its ability to charm and inspire people. So to start, I want you to look back and tell me a little bit about the first technology that you can remember that captured your attention and imagination. Let's see. I was fascinated with so many different technologies as a kid. We didn't have a computer until I was older, so that wasn't really the object of fascination like it is for so many in the tech world. Um, but I was the type who really liked to take things apart and then put them back together, not always working after that. If I had to choose one, um, I actually might choose the piano. And this may not be something that you normally think of as a technology, but it is a this built object. Um, it was simple enough to kind of look inside and more or less see what was going on, but complicated enough to do so many interesting things with it. Um, I did have a vaguely computer-like device that I really enjoyed as well. It was, a, I think, a speak-and-spell knockoff. Had a bunch of simple games, some great music, some very basic programmability. Um, so I think those two kind of come to mind as uh, kind of technologies that fascinated me when I was a kid. Excellent. Well, I'll share as well. So I think the first technology that I became kind of fascinated with in, in my youth, probably in my early teen years, was the AOL chat rooms and the AOL Instant Messenger AIM. Um, I just found it fascinating that you could go into a random chat room on your computer and have people from all over the world chatting with you um, and maybe who they are, maybe who they're not. Uh, so that was kind of my fascination, I think, led me to be curious about the world and the people who are out there. Uh, so I appreciate you sharing your story. So I shared mine. You've taken your fascination and resolve to understand technology and the one laptop per child into your upcoming book. And it revolves around this idea that technology can have charisma. I wonder if you could tell us what that means and why it's important. Yeah, sure. Um so I started following One Laptop Per Child in, I think, late 2008, um, and I was just fascinated by how alluring the laptop that they were designing seemed to be for so many contributors and others all across the tech industry. Um, of course, One Laptop Per Child had very ambitious ideas for how its laptop should be used by children ac across the global south, what the results should be, um, and I... I guess I found that the laptop itself came to stand for those ideas for many people. So I started thinking about how the laptop began to have its own kind of authority in these circles. Even mentioning it came to stand in for a particular kind of joyful, technically deep experience that they wanted more children to have with computers. Um, so in my analysis, I turned to sociological theory to try to make sense of what this allure really meant. Um, and I ended up going all the way back to one of the founders of modern sociology, Max Weber, who outlined and described different kinds of authority. And charismatic authority, in particular, was something that he saw attached to religious or cult leaders um, that may not have the weight of an institution or a government behind them or the weight of tradition behind them, but yet they still seem to really command a following. So 
on the one hand, I saw OLPC's leaders as charismatic in a lot of ways. Nicholas Negroponte has been the public face of the project, and his charisma was incredibly important for promoting it, just as that same charisma helped build the MIT Media Lab in its first couple decades. Um, but in many of the places one laptop or child was taken up, Negroponte wasn't necessarily very well known or really, in some cases, known at all. So in these places, the laptop, OLPC's laptop, came, into stand, came to stand in for those ideas instead. Um, when I think about how charisma might apply to machines, I think a bit about some work in a field called science and technology studies um, that shows how machines themselves have what they call agency. Um, machines can act in the world in ways that go beyond the intentions of their designers. Um, and, um, you know, the authority that both people and machines have isn't necessarily this kind of divine or natural thing. It's something that is produced. It's made by a whole set of social choices and technical constraints that may already exist out there in the world. So when I thought about OLPC's laptop as charismatic, it's not in a kind of hero worship sense. It's really a first step in calling attention to the ways that many have taken that allure for granted and then how that allure was created in the first place. I'm curious about the uh, charisma that you're you're speaking of, about how you think the technology gets it, because you're kind of talking about charisma as if like, you know, this technology has a personality. Uh, so when we talk about the one yeah. laptop per child, would you think that, or any technology, did the charisma come from the spokesperson behind it? So in this case, you kind of necroponte, but you're saying in some places he wasn't well known. Was it the idea behind the technology? It was like a one laptop per child. It was so easy to understand. That was the, the just the core idea that quickly anyone could get. Or do you think it was the design? Uh, we, when you look at the first versions of that one laptop per child, it had little antennas that looked like ears, a yellow crank, so it could be charged no matter what. He would throw it when you know, you know, presentations about the technology, about the computer. So, do you think any one of those or all of those forces are behind trans, you know, furring this idea of personality charisma to the technology? Yeah, I think that. Um all of them to some extent, although to different um, different degrees. So if we think about just the physical form of the machine, we might think a little bit more of a fetish object, maybe. I, I feel like there are Apple products that, that fall into this to some degree. People are so enamored with the lines and the beautiful shape and the colors and the, the manufacturing. Um, and I think there was an element of that for one laptop per child that was important. But when I think of charisma, I think more of what the laptop was meant to do in the world. And I think that its form becomes part of that. But many of the stories that people told about OLPC, especially in those early days, was what they wanted it to do in the world, how they wanted it to transform the lives of children all across the global South. And so often when I think of charisma, I, I think of it as a little bit separate, although somewhat related to kind of, you know, the, the religious fetish object as, as sociologists have discussed it, um, because fetish objects are, are pretty passive, whereas a charismatic technology, I would say, has this promise to act on the world in a particular way and to kind of make the world into... Um, to transform the world in some respects. When you mentioned the Apple products and those lines, there's this like sense of worship behind sometimes the technology and the effect of that in one laptop or child and maybe for other technologies is that it gives it this momentum, but also maybe blinders to the designers. Because sometimes I feel like a technology that I really love, they keep adding to it and they keep doing things to it. And that actually makes me want it less but so, but it's because it has this like worship aura around it, this charisma around it. The designers think that, well, then we can do this with it, that with it, and continue to improve on it. And that limits, you know, sometimes my appreciation or the way that I use it. I think that is um, incredibly insightful. I I do worry a lot about 
the blinding effect that charisma can have, um, not just to, you know, updates and changes in the product, but to what kinds of effects a particular technology might actually have out there in the world. I think many of the early stories about one laptop per child talked about children taking to these machines joyfully, effortlessly, you know, of course they will want a computer. Of course they will want to learn to program with it. Of course they will fall in love with it in many ways. Um, and I think that many of the people involved in One Laptop or Child had felt that themselves with computers. But one thing I worry about, um, and here's the blinding effect that charisma can have, is that um, they were not of typical, right? Not It's not all children who kind of fall in love with computers and really want to know how they work at a deep level. That's a pretty small part of the population. And to assume that they could design this machine that would be taken up all across the global South and that all children would love was um, a little bit of that blinding effect that, that charisma can sometimes create. And so do you think that blinding kind of comes from the hype, the hysteria, or do you think it's the maybe ambition and arrogance of the person bringing it forward? Honestly, in the story of telling um, this history and then kind of grounded ethnography of one laptop or child, I certainly draw on Negroponte, but I don't dwell on him too much because there were times when I was in the room with some people working for one laptop or child and we'd be watching maybe a, you know, a video of Negroponte or a, um, a I think there was at least one case where he video chatted in. He didn't actually travel to the summit I was at, but he joined via video and he was talking on about all of these grand things and everyone in the room had their their head in their hand and they were shaking their head. What is Negroponte saying now? Um, So I think in many ways he drove the project. He certainly helped drive the some of the excitement about the project by being the public face of it. But the project really had a life of its own beyond him too. And I really try to focus on that in the book because I feel like that is what ended up having um, some effects on the world. That That's what ended up kind of getting people interested in buying them, um, both through the Give One, Get One program, and also through various governments and NGOs, um, largely in Latin America. Um, that's what kind of drove various uh, small communities that were really interested in you know, contributing to the software, for example. It wasn't so much Negroponte. It was more the promise that this project had. Um, and it can be hard to sort of tease Negroponte's ego and his ambitions out from that. But in a lot of ways, the vision for the project was not really his. It really came more from Seymour Papert and Papert's writings about the potential for children and computers than from Negroponte's digital utopianism. I think there's an element of Negroponte there, but I would I would say it is less influential. You know, as you were speaking, I kind of also was feeling the parallels to Apple that kind of started with Steve Jobs and as an iconic figure and as the charismatic leader behind the brand with kind of Wozniak really in the background being another driving force. But that once Apple kind of the brand, the charisma transferred to the iPhone and the iPad and the the, the computers, it takes on a life of its own. The people that work for the company, the consumers, the customers that demand it, then it's no longer, you know, it was maybe Steve Jobs had a, a role in it, but it's not the whole story. And it's, you know, in terms of charismatic technology to dwell on the Negroponte or the jobs, you need to know it, but maybe that's not the central, you know, part of the story. So I, I can appreciate that. Yes, uh, exactly. As I was reading into your work and, and some of the things that, you know, I think are in the book, I really found interesting your discussion on the contradictory findings about charisma, that the charisma of technology brings hype, attention, aspirations and money, but you also argue it often misses expectations when it comes to actual social benefit. And the other side, when it comes to things, you know, trying to improve society, make a better world, things with less charisma, things that get less attention, less media, less news actually might create more benefit. So what are we to make of this contradiction? And is there anything we can do about it? I wish there were an easy solution. Um, Charismatic technologies 
often are more about myths than reality. So if we think of one laptop per child, it was a kind of mythical child they were designing for, not necessarily actual children in the global South or really in most of the world. Um, I think we love the idea that we can transcend or transform our worlds rather than really having to deal with the messy integration into everyday life, right? Um, I'm certainly not the first scholar to point out some of the problems with that kind of end of history disruptive rhetoric, but I think One Laptop Per Child provides a really great case study to see exactly what happens with some of that rhetoric. Um, for one, I think about you know the pot the possibilities of social change. Social change is really difficult. Um, if it were easy, we'd all be out there transforming the world to fit our visions all the time. And that's not to say we shouldn't try. But sometimes I think we'd be better served if more of us recognize that even incremental change takes a lot more time, resources, and work than is often acknowledged. Um, and this holds true for technology projects too. Um, they love to talk about easy disruption, about moonshots, about um, really transformative potentials. But, um, but in this book, I really try to provide a vivid and detailed example of what happens when those kinds of stories um, hit reality? What happens when a charismatic technology that was built around particular ideals come up, comes up against the lived realities of its intended audience who don't necessarily share those ideals? One of the terms you mentioned there that we, you know, reminds me of a lot of the first season of the podcast things we talked about was when you mentioned the mythical child, which was the idea that one laptop per child is going to serve this child that in reality didn't really exist or very few of them existed, but everyone still got on board with it. And I start to think about some of the projects that I've seen or been associated with. There's probably been mythical villagers, mythical poor underserved youth or poor underserved teachers. And I'm wondering if there are any signs, like maybe there are people out there that are working on a project or have a charismatic leader and they're asking themselves like, wait, maybe are we doing this? Are we pursuing something that doesn't exist? So I'm wondering if there are any signs that someone can look for or questions they could ask themselves to see, am I, you know, doing this kind of mythicism that may lead to, you know, missed uh, kind of missteps in my, my work. I think that one piece that concerns me, um, and this is having come through a computer science undergraduate program myself. So I, I lived this reality for at least a little while was that, um, often technologists talk and sometimes think, although not always, um, that, that they're the smartest people in the room and they don't necessarily have to consult with others, that they clearly, the, the technical knowledge that they have will translate into other spaces. They'll be able to figure it out. Um, but I think that there are consequences to that, not just with projects like One Laptop or Child, but really in a lot of the moral crises across the technology world as a whole. Um, so I would say as a first step to thinking, to kind of staying a little bit more grounded, um, I would certainly have them be a little bit more critical of that moonshot model of technology-driven social change. Uh, when projects are really encouraged to think big, to disrupt, to fail fast and often, these are all maxims that are kind of problematic, especially when you think about a space that has a lot less resources than, say, Silicon Valley venture capital, um, such as educational reform or um, economic development projects. Um, those sorts of transformational stories are not only realistic, they can have some really negative consequences for what sorts of projects get attention and what sorts of projects get funding. And these more long-term moderate projects um, tend not to get attention in those cases. Um, at the very least, I really hope that you know, my, my book perhaps and, and this conversation can encourage people to just think about how they might be caught up in the charismatic story of a technology themselves. And possibly they can pull themselves back out of that a little bit, maybe stay a little bit more grounded, keep their eyes and ears open, keep their hearts a little more humble. 
this is a struggle we face in the nonprofit world, which is those that are charismatic and tell these stories of a potential silver silver bullet that's going to go in and destroy some kind of terrible, you know, societal ill. Those are the people that get the attention. Those are the people that get the money. Those are the people that donors also probably caught up in the charisma gravitate towards. And so there's a struggle that, you know, I know we face when you have to fundraise, when there's only a, you know, the dollars are scarce, is how do I not go to one extreme, which are say things that obviously are an exaggeration and are, you know, telling a story that's generalized to try to get, you know, attention and probably create charisma versus putting your nose to the ground, working really hard with almost no resources, but then having the donors, the media not really understand because they haven't spent the time on the ground and they don't know the reality. And then you're stuck of, I've met so many folks also that struggle because they don't have the funding and they can't, because like with this contradiction we talked about, they're doing important work, but it's not charismatic. So they can't get the funding. So this is like a struggle. We all, I think in the nonprofit world faces, you know, how, because the part that turned me off the most when I was working for the United Nations was what's commonly known as poverty porn, which is when they would put up pictures of sad children and to evoke this, probably a different emotion, maybe the charisma, but to evoke something in someone to want to give money and feel bad about the situation. Where on the other side, sometimes we put these are the people we're trying to empower and they're the ones with the solutions. So this is a real struggle that you're talking about. Yes. Um, and I certainly saw this on the ground with some of the NGOs and um, organizations running these one laptop per child projects day to day. So in Paraguay, they're the um, organization running the project, training the teachers, putting in the infrastructure, doing the repairs um, was was an NGO, non-governmental organization called Paraguay Educa. And they had some really wonderful people. Um, they had some talented programmers. They had some great um, educators developing content, and they were very aware of the the demands that NGOs are placed in. Right, so they could tell a great story about what this project would do. Um, that was very much that kind of charismatic story, but in a lot of ways, they did stay pretty grounded about what was actually happening. I mean, they were out there often enough that they could see that the, you know, the mat, the major transformation that OLPC had promised wasn't really coming true. Um, instead, it was kind of small incremental things that were wrought from a lot of effort on their part. So I think one catch 22 that they found themselves in though was that when say people from one laptop or child or or donor agencies came through they found they had to kind of perform success to them right they they had told this particular story and if they tried to say well we didn't quite get there but we have some great results like look at the you know the attendance numbers for these kids um, they're more motivated to learn to read basic reading. They're becoming kind of technologically literate in various ways. Um, they're not learning to program generally, but like these are important changes, right? Um, however, that would really pale in comparison to this story that they had told initially of kids really joyfully and, and effortlessly taking to these machines. So, um, so what I found often happened, and I think often happens in these projects is that you end up having to kind of perform success, but then you risk the, uh, the funding agency saying, oh, well, you've succeeded. You don't need another renewal grant, right? You don't need more funding to continue this because mission accomplished. We're done. Um, where, or if they're, you know, honest and say, well, we have these great incremental results, but we need more time and resources. They might say, wait a minute, this isn't what you promised. This is failure according to the the lines that you put out initially. So I think that there's this real catch-22 that NGOs find themselves in because they're in a lot of ways required to tell stories like this, even if they can stay kind of grounded and realistic themselves. One thing you just made me think of is that when there's a charismatic leader or you're, maybe you're part of a project like One Laptop or Child and you're like saying, oh, but look at all the media we're getting, look at all the money we're getting. 
understand that if you're on the ground having to then implement that, you're going to have to end up selling missed expectations. And that's one of the hardest things to do because once that bell has been rung, that this is what you're going to get, it's hard to back off of that. Another thing that I want to talk with you a little bit about, I think you started to go towards where the middle ground is, which is authentic storytelling. And the reason you were able to tell us a little bit authentically about you know, one laptop per child on the ground is because you went to Paraguay and you went and you studied it. So I'd like to know from you what kind of caused you to be like, you know what, I have to go. I have to actually see it on the ground. I can't just keep hearing stories and hearing it maybe from Negroponte when he calls in from uh, from Skype or, or whatever, uh, from his video call. What caused you to decide to go down to Paraguay to learn? And how is that a difference maker for you? You know, in, in reading other analyses of One Laptop Per Child, I saw so many discussions about the project's potential effects, um, some of them very utopian, some of them very dystopian, some, some of them very critical. And I think that these analyses were really useful in helping develop my own thinking about the project. But in my mind, they were kind of missing half the story, right? It's hard to know what's actually going on with these projects without really being there, being on the ground. Um, especially because the incentives are to paint a really rosy picture from a distance. Um, and I don't fault projects at all for doing this. I think that, as we just talked about, it's really necessary in a lot of cases to, um, to sustain themselves. But, um, but without seeing what kids were really doing, I feel like I couldn't tell the full story of one laptop per child. And one thing I found in Paraguay was that over half of the kids didn't really use their laptops. They didn't find the laptops interesting. They would rather go play with friends or they spent time with family. They would help their family with their businesses. Um, um, about when I was there, it was a year and a bit into the project. Um, and I found that a number of the laptops had been broken. Um, and this and breakage was in fact a way bigger problem than Paraguay Educa had initially anticipated. So then this was because, um, you know, Negroponte would love to toss exos around the stage and then turn them on in his presentations. OLPC leaders had told Paraguay Educa that these laptops were incredibly rugged. They could withstand being tossed around like this. And then they would turn around and say, you know, if there were any issues that came up, kids would be able to do the repairs themselves. Um, Papert in an interview for One Laptop Per Child said an eight-year-old is capable of doing 90% of tech support and a 12-year-old 100%, and this is not exploiting the children, it's giving them a powerful learning experience. So, so within this context, Paraguay Educa didn't really apportion extra repair parts for break, broken laptops. Um, and, uh, you know, within a few months, they quickly realized that the kind of breakage that was actually happening on the ground was not, were not things that kids could fix on their own. Um, they needed way more spare parts than OLPC had provided. They end up, ended up reaching out to Uruguay, that, which had a very large project and had contacted the manufacturers directly to get repair parts. And Uruguay kindly sold them several lots of repair parts. Um, but when Paraguay Educa's funding started to run dry, um, they couldn't do that anymore. And the broken laptops started to really stack up. When I returned in 2013 uh, for some follow-up field work, one participant estimated that um, generously maybe 40% of laptops were still working. And even those tended not to be used very often. So it's these kinds of details that one can really only get on the ground. Um, in the early days of the project, many people were really worried about theft, for example, and a black market of laptops. But in my experience, this pro problem was pretty much non-existent. I never heard of a stolen laptop, um, in part because they had a really robust security system. Um, but breakage was a major problem and was really not adequately anticipated. Um, there were also some features of the laptop, like the mesh network, that really generated a lot of excitement. And I love the potential for mesh networks to kind of subvert authority, right? Um, it, they've been important in the Hong Kong protests uh, recently. But, um, 
but it really didn't work in practice on OLBC's laptop. The laptops were just too slow. Their batteries drained too fast um, to make mesh networking really possible. And that capability was in fact removed in a software update um, to Sugar while I was there in Paraguay. You were on the front line and you've seen it. You've obviously analyzed it. How much of the failures that you saw would you attribute to poor execution you know, of the team not thinking these through, how much would you attribute it to a misplaced vision, just an overall misplaced vision of the charisma blinding them to not seeing it? Uh, how would you attribute some of these failures you saw? That's a great question. And in my mind, it's it's sometimes really hard to separate those because the execution was in many ways inspired by the vision, right? Um, I think that had the laptop been under development longer, if they had ironed out some of these issues, perhaps it would have done a little bit better. But if it had that same vision behind it of kids really joyfully and effortlessly taking to these machines, teaching themselves, leapfrogging past the adults in their lives, um, and ultimately you know, becoming kind of economic engines in their countries through this joy... I feel like that was just such a big, a big ask, a big uh, request to put on it the, the shoulders of any one project that it wasn't fully possible. That said, I think that charisma is really important for motivating people. So I don't want to necessarily do away with charismatic projects as a whole, and I don't think I can necessarily. Um, it's it's necess- it's really important though to recognize that charisma brings people together. It motivates them. It gives them a sense of purpose. It gives them a vision. And um, the trouble I would say comes when that vision gets really disconnected from reality. So if OLPC had been able to sustain that charismatic vision but really work closely with people on the ground, really value their voices um, and decenter their own experiences, their childhood experiences with laptops, um, their present day experiences in the programming community. Um, I think that it could have been a very different project, but it would have had a really different vision and it would have possibly not been as charismatic as a result. So there's a little bit of a... Uh, of a paradox there. Yeah, I was thinking about that paradox just when you said that, which is a more realistic vision to the project may have led to less ability to execute, which is less resources, less education systems buying in to actually try it. And it also got me thinking about in your writings, you talk about how the benefit of charismatic technology may not be the technology at all, but about the mindset changes and the optimism that it may bring. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that and, and how you saw that on the ground in Paraguay. Yeah, sure. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit more abstractly before I get back to Paraguay. I think that um, one, one thing I found very interesting about some of the inspirations for One Laptop Per Child is the ways that they were not so different from some of the inspirations for, say, the logo programming language, or even for some of the inspirations behind 1920s radio culture. Um, 1990s uh, cyber culture had many of the same kinds of stories. And so that a very similar vision sort of sustained itself attached to new technologies over time. And since One Laptop or Child, I've seen similar visions attached to MOOCs, for example, um, also makerspaces and kind of the maker movement. So uh, one interesting thing about these visions is that for many, it wasn't necessarily a shift. It was more of a continuation of the same thing attached to new technologies. Um, however, there, I think One Laptop or Child did have some important effects in the um, technology-driven development space. I think that many of the projects there are much more grounded and nuanced today than 
they were around the time One Laptop Per Child was announced. And I attribute that at least in part to One Laptop Per, per Child's trajectory. Um, I would say that the same shift in vision hasn't necessarily happened in educational technologies. There's still a lot of kind of utopianism, a lot of disconnection from the lived realities of students and teachers, and um, still a lot of stories circulating about, you know, school hasn't changed in a hundred years, for example, even though it has shifted a fair amount in a hundred years. It's just that school is is a complicated institution and we attach a lot of um, expectation to it to transform culture that isn't always realistic in a similar way to the way that we expect charismatic technologies to transform culture in a way that isn't always realistic. Um, So I would say that maybe the biggest shift has been in uh, technology, technologically driven development projects. Um, and I can hope that in time, the technology driven, technologically driven educational reform movement can also learn some of those lessons. It can shift a little bit towards a little bit more grounded results. Um, in Paraguay, I found that the project was generally welcomed. People were pretty excited about it. And some kids didn't care so much for their laptops, but about a third started using them. Um, They used them more for their own purposes. So they found that rather than a machine to learn to how to program, they could get on the internet, they could listen to any music they wanted, they could watch videos, they could play little video games. Um, This was the kind of use that they got excited about. And this was almost all kids who used their laptops really at all. Um, For them, the internet was the sort of charismatic technology in the room. And the laptop was just a mode for getting to the internet. In 2009 and 2010 in particular, when the project started and when I did my field work, very few people in Paraguay had computers. And almost everybody had those kind of either flip phones or candy bar phones. They did not have smartphones yet. This did change in 2013 when I went back, and I think that there was just some really massive changes in the computer industry more generally to make smartphones much more widely available, much more affordable. Um, When I went back, almost everybody had an Android device, um, often a kind of a little bit of a knockoff Android device that maybe didn't have full functionality, but was still a smartphone. Um, A lot more people had computers too, and so a lot more people had access to to the internet without having to go through the one laptop per child XO laptop, which in many ways wasn't designed to be a multimedia machine. It was it was really designed around some of those older computers, um, so the model of that, and and kept its power lower in the process. But it wasn't always able to um, you know deliver when it came to complex graphics or faster speeds. So I'm going to take things to the abstract, and I want to come with another targeted question. Uh, One of the technologies that has charisma that you mentioned that I've also had some experience with, you said MOOCs. With those who don't out there who don't know what that is, it's a massively open online course with the idea that anyone from around the world who might not have access to a school or a college could go to one of these massively open courses and learn and get um, information or take a class they wouldn't normally get uh, in my kind of feeling about it was that there was a lot of potential in online learning, but did MOOCs have impact? Did MOOCs have engagement, the key things of student interaction, teacher interaction? And I felt like, you know, you mentioned this before, there was a sense of performance art of those that ran MOOCs, which was, you know, saying how many people took it when it's really, well, how many people finished it was a question I would ask. Uh, But what's interesting is it did get people really excited and thinking about the power of online learning and, it opened up a pathway where I probably was able to run some smaller curated facilitated online courses that I think had a lot of impact. Uh, And probably it would have been hard to get that investment if not for the, you know, the mindset shifts that MOOCs was creating around online learning. And just hearing you speak and some of the things you said, you know, if I looked back and I was in my shoes and maybe for other people who are, you know, seeing a charismatic technology and think that there could be impact in the other way, I would have thought a little bit more about how I could have used charisma of the smaller online courses and how I could have, I think I I tried to 
sell it against what it, why it was not a MOOC and how it overcame what MOOCs weren't instead of maybe looking for its own, my own charismatic angle for the course. So that's just something you kind of maybe think about and might be an insight for people out there who are like, oh, I know this like technology that everyone talks about in my field and they think it's, you know, the best thing ever, but it's not. And I think our notion is to try to fight against that, but maybe a discipline to say, well, what is the charisma about? How can I use it in the way that I want to advance the thing that I'm working on? Yes. Yeah. How do you really knowingly harness it um, without necessarily being caught up in it in quite the same way? I think that's a really great insight. Um, yeah, MOOCs, you know, I teach an online class at this point too. The uh, master's in data science program at Berkeley is, is entirely online. And there's some really wonderful things about that. There are a lot of students who wouldn't be able to, you know, take a year or two off and move to Berkeley where it's very expensive to live um, and complete a program. Um, many of them have families, they have jobs, and um, but they're really interested in data science. And so programs like this can enable them to get a data science degree and get a lot of training from anywhere in the world. I have students, I had a student in, you know, Qatar. I've had students in Europe. Um, they have to call into the classes at 1 a.m. sometimes. But uh, but yeah, no, I, I think there's a lot of promise there. And I think, um, you know, I, I would trace that lineage not just back to MOOCs, but there is an open courseware movement in the late 1990s, um, which I saw some of the effects of as an undergraduate. There were a lot of my classes that were live cast. And um, you could watch the recordings afterwards. You could interact in uh, forums with all of the TAs. And um, those were, at the time at least, it sounded like fairly new ideas in the um, kind of computer science education world. Um, and they kind of disappeared a little bit with the, I think, the first dot-com bubble crash, uh, the funding for the the recordings at Berkeley, for example, went away at that point. Um, but then they were kind of resurrected with MOOCs. I think one interesting thing with MOOCs too is that they were blamed for so many different things. They were blamed for, you know, the death of universities or the death of the humanities when really those were kind of larger economic movements that have been pushing towards, you know, the, the business businessification, neoliberalization of universities for decades, but it gets kind of pinned on MOOCs, right? Because they're the, the easy target. So I think there's some utopianism, also some dystopianism that can get attached. But I think you're right that they have, they provided a proof of concept for um, well-designed open classes that provided a lot more one-on-one -on -one feedback than a MOOC might, um, but still use some of those same ideas. I think we we're hitting on one of the benefits of charisma that even if some of the charismatic technologies are destined to fail, they do inspire, they do create movements, they allow for better new iterations of that first charismatic technology, that first thought behind it. Now, since you're an academic, I want to know, can we measure that benefit? Do we need to measure it and, and how we might go about it? My own research tends to be interpretive, largely. I rely a lot on ethnography and on kind of larger cultural questions. Um, I do take culture very seriously as a mode of influencing people, the way that they imagine themselves as fitting into a particular culture, whether that is a sort of national culture or various subcultures within that. And I think that that provides a really useful lens for tracing the influence of these kinds of projects. Um, I think about those larger cultural stories that we tell um, that get told through media to some extent, but then get echoed through family interactions, through friends, through institutions like schools. So I would say um, for many of these projects, I'm always really fascinated by the kinds of cultural stories that they generate, um, the kinds of potential shifts in the way we think about say, children or technology that they might create. Um, or in some cases, the way that they echo the same kinds of cultural understandings of childhood and technology's role in it and schools and all of these other things that might have been around for a long time. So I would point towards those kind of larger cultural questions as a way to, to explore that uh, 
those influences over time. We talked a little bit about benefit here because I do think one laptop per child has to be a cautionary tale as well. I guess I want to go to one more question about it. Uh, in your 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 writings, I was really taken by this idea that the one laptop per child promised to break status quo, break you know traditional school education, new ways for kids to learn. Yet you argue in your writings that in many ways the one laptop per child and maybe other charismatic technologies actually reinforce the status quo. Hmm. So can you explain that? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I feel like this is one of the great ironies of this project and of many charismatic technology projects, um, especially in education, because this is something we associate with children, we associate with our own childhoods, um, but also in other spaces too. And many of these projects paint a vision for a utopian future, but really in order to be charismatic, they have to appeal to parts of the world that are familiar to those that they want to reach. So they have to kind of echo pieces of their world that um, that are already legible to them, that already are recognizable. Um, in One Laptop Per Child's case, I saw that as the kinds of childhood experiences with computers that many many techies who were really interested in the project fondly recounted from their own childhoods. Um, in the early years of One Laptop Per Child, I was I followed dozens, possibly hundreds of discussions <laughs> across the web um, about One Laptop Per Child, some from project contributors, but many from just people interested in the project that were comparing various features of OLPC's XO laptop to Commodores, to Amigas, to Apple IIs, to various other machines that they had used in their own youths, um, in some cases decades before. And I found it interesting that the specifications of these older systems were even used um, to help justify making the Exo laptop really underpowered. Um, so of course, reducing the laptop's energy usage was really a driving goal, but the way that they justified it and the way that they kept the laptop seeming charismatic and not just a kind of underpowered machine was um, that these old systems didn't need fancy graphics or lots of memory to be captivating. So why would the XO need them? Um, this did end up creating really big problems in use because a lot of kids today don't really care about these older systems. They want a computer that can take advantage of the media rich web and the XO really had trouble delivering there. Um, but in this way, I talk about the way that charisma might echo these past um, might draw on these nostalgic ideas as a way of reinforcing the reinforcing the status quo. It might promise to quickly and painlessly transform our lives for the better, but it's appealing really because it amplifies existing values and ideologies. Um, in one laptop per child's case, it promoted a vision of the world where children across the global south would have the opportunity to have the same kinds of formative experiences with a computer that many of these adults remembered having with their Commodores and Amigas and Apple IIs. When you've discussed this, it reminded me of an ongoing kind of battle or one of my crusades, which is to get rid of the idea that there's a first world and a third world. And when you were talking, because I felt that when we use those terms, it and we're trying, and the people who use it, their intention is to be like, oh, these are places that need help. These are places that are under-resourced. But when they, my mind, when they use the first world and third world terminology, it's a emotional, almost charismatic way to be like, we need to do something. We need to act. And yet now your discussion was in this kind of, again, irony is that by using those terms, I really believe we are reinforcing a status quo of, you know, this is a place where the third world needs first world solutions to get up to the first world. And yet I've seen that that mindset being the basis of a failure of so many projects. And I see it in one laptop per child too, especially when you mentioned the broken parts. I can't tell you how many water, um, you know, faucets or other projects I saw fail for, again, because I think of this notion of they thought they were bringing something to help, but they were really reinforcing the status quo of bringing them things that were not going to get them out of the situation and reinforcing them falling behind where, uh, first world is and you mentioned the laptop which was like oh in the first world yeah we have street you know we have uh, graphics internet but oh in th these countries they're going to want something else 
Um, not thinking, oh, they're going to want what we have in the first world. So I find that fascinating. And you brought me back to one of my crusades I, I bring up in the podcast uh, every once in a while is that's one of my goals is a, of, of what we're doing here is to destroy this no, notion that there's a first world and a third world. I actually sometimes think the greatest innovations and ideas uh, come from the so-called third world that the first world should uh, pay attention to. Absolutely. Um, I I can't, I'm reminded and I can't help but plug a really wonderful book that a colleague and friend of mine has recently published um, called Chasing Innovations. This is Lily Irani's book. She's a uh, professor at UC San Diego. And she talks a lot about how um, through her fieldwork in India, she found that certain kinds of entrepreneurialism were really valued, ones that attach themselves more to these kind of you know, quote unquote, global north ideas of what an entrepreneur and what entrepreneurship should be when um, there was kind of, you know, in some ways, entrepreneurship happening all the time. It was just not monetized in quite the right way. Right. And it talks about how pernicious this kind of this entrepreneurial drive is um, in India, but really across the world. She it's a, it's an incredible account. I really recommend it. Um, I do tend to use a little bit different terminology myself. Um, so first world, third world is very much a kind of Cold War uh, relic where we talked about, you know, the first world was the democratic nations. The second world was the communist nations. And the third world were, were could go one way or another. And we had to steer it one way or another, right? Um, I, another word I use, I hear a lot is developing countries, this sort of has this model of this linear progression of development that you know we're pulling them up up the cliff of development and and soon they'll be here and we will all be here together um, and it's not to say that I don't I want to very specifically acknowledge the kinds of material differences between what I use what I say is global north and the global south and the historic conditions that produce those material differences there is a very long history of extractive industries, of colonialism, of kind of post-colonial imperialism in all of these places that really created the conditions of um, prosperity in what's considered the global north and poverty in, in the global south. So I think that really attending to that history and the real lived ramifications of it is important, which is one reason I do tend to use those that terminology a little bit. Um, that said, I agree that I would never want to reify it in any way and say like, this is how it is. It's never going to change. Right. Um, and, uh, and here again, I think just really attending to the lived experiences of people in these places and what that means and how that fits into this long history of, of kind of extractive politics um, is really important to consider. I'm, I'm glad you brought up developing nation term as well, because that doesn't work for me because that means we can't or don't need to develop anymore. And I know I want to keep developing. I think there's a lot of people that might consider themselves a developed nation that probably need to still have some developing to do as well. So I'm glad you, you brought that one up. I want to ask you one more one laptop per child question. And this one's going to probably push your boundaries a little bit because I know you're an academic, but I you know so much about this project and you've, you know, you'll, you could do your best on this one. Uh, let's say someone brought you a charismatic technology or you're working for a company and you see a charismatic technology. What could someone have done differently that they did in one laptop or child? What advice would you bring to someone that sees a technology, maybe millions of dollars behind it and there's charisma there? What are any tips or things that, that you think they can do to try to get the best possible outcome? Gosh, there's so many, so many possibilities. I will, I will pick one. <laughs> yeah, I think so much so often, you know, the story of academia is or the story of academics is it's complicated, right? Like that's, you know, we I think the media loves like really clean utopian narratives that they'll flip very quickly to very clean dystopian narratives and really everything is kind of a muddle in the middle really. Um but I will do my best. <laughs> um so I would say that one piece of advice I would give maybe someone working on a project like this, if it's already pretty well established, you know, it's, it's, 
Uh, there's already the stories in place. There are already a lot of funders lined up behind those stories is to find, possibly find places to shift those stories away from pro maybe problematic mythologies. I mean, I when I look at One Laptop Per Child, one thing that um, that frustrated me was the way that it on one hand would talk really inclusively about boys and girls and many ways of knowing, but then would turn around and extol the, the virtues of video games and technical tinkering in a way that evoked really a century of um, advertising towards boys. And in this way, it ended up being kind of coded in a, in a way towards towards uh, what I call technically precocious boys in particular. And it's not that girls can't take it up or that they are somehow prevented from it, but by evoking those stories about um, video games, which have long been marketed to boys, by evoking stories about, you know, tinker toys and, and gears and other kind of technical toys that were likewise marketed to boys for, for decades, um, it kind of rode the wave of those um, of those ideas, those cultural ideas that we have. And in some ways, that's what helped make it charismatic. But I would say that for some of these technologies, I would find ways of telling new stories that <clears throat> didn't just avoid those kinds of I cultural ideas, actively pushed back against them, created a new vision. And I feel like I see a lot more of this today, which is heartening in a lot of ways. And I hope that it might shift the the industry more broadly, the computer science tech industry. Um, but I also hope it shifts some of these um, charismatic technologies out there in the world away from these kind of long-standing narratives about who, who is a natural at using these technologies and who has to kind of account for themselves and their interests if they have an interest in this technology. And, um, and I think by really facing those narratives head on and saying like, no, this is not just for those kinds of people. This is for these kinds of people. And here's why um, these technologies can work towards, um, towards more inclusivity. I would also say that those stories can be really grounded in experiences of people today on the ground. And I think they can still be charismatic and be grounded in this way. Um, I think it's harder and you have to spend some time looking for those stories and really listening to people and thinking about how to, um, I don't know, do the translation work from their experience to a kind of broader experience. But I think that there's a lot of potential there. And I think that it could have really transformative, um, to use a possibly problematic idea, um, effects in the in the charismatic tech space and it, within the technology industry more broadly. So I'm going to try to summarize this, this really interesting point you've made here, which I'm going to call the graceful pivot, which is if you're in a situation where there's a charismatic technology, you're a little worried about it, what's a graceful pivot that you can make that might use what we can call responsible charisma, but it's authentic and thoughtful of dangerous mythology. So I think that that's kind of, I'm trying to put a bow on there, which you've just, you know, I think gone much more uh, in depth on, which is, you know, don't fight against it, but find ways to use that momentum in a way that leads to the kind of change in mindsets that you want to see. So I really like uh, that. And I know we're running out of time here. So I want to get to our final question that we're asking all our guests this season, which is, is there in the world today, a legacy system, a tradition, or a status quo that people might take as normal or as something that we just have to live with that you personally think should get broken? <laughs> um, my, first, uh, my first inclination is to say smash the patriarchy. And that's not to say, <laughs> you know, smash all men out there ever in the world. But I think that everybody lives. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm reminded too of the... Um, you know, the, the MIT disruptor prize and the, the winners were the Me Too movement last year. And, and one of the, one of the uh, kind of, you know, drivers of the Me Too movement stood up on stage and said that. And she has since been just kind of appalled that the Media Lab has been 
tied up in in the scandal that it has, sadly. Um, but uh, but I think that you know so much of the account of um, one laptop or child rests on particular particular ideas about boys and girls that are inherently patriarchal. And it's not that, you know, some people are advantaged and some people are disadvantaged, but we are all, we are all pigeonholed in this world, right? We are all pigeonholed under this set of ideas and they are um, at least somewhat oppressive to all of us, um, some more than others. And uh, so I think, I would, you know, I, I, we've talked a lot about ways for reforming, um, you know, the stories that NGOs describe. I love your idea about responsible charisma, but I got to say, when you think about, when you'd ask about one tradition or status quo in the world that I think needs to be broken, I just, I can't help but, but go to the patriarchy. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I'll take that as, you know, gender stereotypes and technology are still there. And again, I can't speak for all men, but I think what is hard to understand is that it's not going to change overnight. It's not one talk or one, you know, year that, you know, a Me Too movement gets the time, people of the year, whatever, but it's going to take years and a lot of thoughtfulness on, you know, from, from the leadership, um, men and women to understand that you can't reverse and break gender stereotypes and technology overnight. It's just not going to happen. And it's something that needs ongoing attention and ongoing thoughtfulness to, you know, really remedy. And so that, you know, all of the potential of individuals, no matter their gender, sexual orientation, ethnicity, et cetera, can be realized. So with that, I do I do appreciate uh, what you want to break uh, your, your request there. Uh, so before we go, I want you to share with the audience more about where they can learn more about your work, uh, how they can order your book, um, all those good things. Yeah, sure. Um, so my website is Morganya, M-O-R-G-A-N-Y-A.org. I try to keep it fairly updated with new research ideas I have, um, publications I have that come out. Um, from there, I also have a link to a description of the book. Um, the book's cover is up there. Um, book talks I'm giving are listed there as well. And if you click through to... Um, to the MIT Press website, you can pre-order the book. It should be released um, October 29th, I think was the date I was last told, um, plus or minus a little bit, but you can pre-order on the MIT website, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, Indigo, Power, Powell's, Waterstones, um, they all have it available. And um, yeah, I, I also tweet, although mostly most of my tweets are retweets these days, but I occasionally come out with with something pithy to say. Uh, so people are welcome to follow me there. I'm Morgan G. Ames there. Morgania was taken, so I have Morgan G. Ames instead. And um, yeah, I really always welcome discussion, commentary. Twitter is a good way to, um, to reach me for that. And I hope that, I just really hope that this account of One Laptop or Child can, can do some good in the world, can help, maybe help people stay a little more grounded, keep their eyes and ears open and maybe keep their hearts just a little more humble in the end. Great. Well, I'm going to link all those things in the podcast description. I want to thank you, Professor Ames, for your time, for your thoughtfulness, and for bringing that to the podcast. Um, all right, everyone, please go check out the book. Check out uh, Morgan on Twitter. I also follow and I've engaged with her. That's how we got her on the podcast. So thank you, Professor Ames, and thanks everyone for listening. Thank you so much. But life still goes on I can't get used to living without, living without, living without you I want to show my gratitude to everyone who made this episode possible. First, thanks to Professor Ames for sharing her story and wisdom with us today. Her book, The Charisma Machine, The Life, Death, and Legacy of One Laptop Per Child from MIT Press is available now where books are sold. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Simon Green. You can find him on Twitter, at iSimonG, and he's the one that's always making sure everyone on the podcast sounds so good. The recording today was done on Zencaster, hosted with SoundCloud, and spread on platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
If you enjoyed this episode, you can check out Season 1, Episode 12, which covers the One Laptop Per Child story from the perspective of its founder and figurehead, Nicholas Negroponte. Now, even though One Laptop Per Child failed, you can help me succeed with a one review per podcast listener by rating the podcast on whichever platform you listen on. You can follow us on Twitter at Let's Break Good and visit us at letsbreakgood.com for more information or to get in touch with the team. Until next time, I'm Joe Agoda and you've been listening to the Let's Break Good podcast. Nobody